Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist, a confidence boost before your interview, or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Today's special episode is by Dr. Lauren Quigley, who returns to the show after receiving her PhD in French Studies at Queen's University, Belfast. Lauren is a researcher in Francophone Literary Urban Studies whose interests include contemporary French poetry, mobilities, space, the intersection of form in literature and architecture, the city of Paris, and urban visual culture. Her thesis, entitled Parisian Poesis, Architecture and the Aesthetics of Contemporary French Poetry, examined contemporary French poetry's role in the critical examination of Paris urban renewal via a reading of urban and poetic form. Paris has long been one of the most written-about cities in human history. Furthermore, it is written of alternatively as a character, a force of nature, and countless other depictions. The classic works of Balzac and Hugo bring to life a city which is itself alive. But depictions of Paris did not end with the 19th century. In what follows, Dr. Quigley explains how more modern writers imagine Paris. I'm Dr. Lauren Quigley, and I'm thrilled to be taking you through a brief history of modern Parisian literature. As the scholar Michael Sheridan once said, to go to and fro in Parisian space is to explore oneself as well as the city. Arguably, no city has inspired so many creative outputs as much as Paris, as seen throughout history, from Victor Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris to more recently the city's right bank in Virginie Despont's literary phenomenons, or the town of Sergi in Greater Paris in Anne Arnaud's works. In this episode, I'll attempt to trace the ways in which Paris and its ongoing urban renewal is reflected in the city's modern literary history. Although this episode could easily have lasted five hours, given the richness of the city's literary corpus, I'll be talking today about writers who have directly engaged with the city and the way the urban fabric has shaped their work. Starting with an overview of housemanization, this episode will trace the modern city's impact on canonical and less canonical literary works. In part one, we'll examine the first urban poet of sorts, Charles Baudelaire, and we'll see how the urban renewal of Paris through housemanization is reflected in his works. We'll pay particular attention to his poem, Le Signe, or This One. Moving from Baudelaire's feelings of alienation into a Paris that inspires the imaginary, we will briefly examine some avant-garde perspectives on the city by Guillaume Apollinaire and Blaise Sondrars. 
they'll focus specifically on their depictions of the Eiffel Tower. Then we move into surrealist Paris through the eyes of André Breton and Louis Aragon. As we jump to Paris through the eyes of the Oulipo or the Ouvoir de Littérature Potentielle group, we'll explore literary experimentation throughout the city, as seen through the work of writers such as Georges Perec and Raymond Cuneau. Then, moving from experimentation to a more celebratory perspective on the city, we'll touch on the work of celebrated poet Jacques Prévert. We'll then notice a shift in critical engagement with the city in the second half of the 20th century. Here we'll look at the work of some poets in the 70s and 80s, as well as the genre of bonheur literature. We'll then witness how contemporary poetry engages with urban change, up to the current discourse on the Greater Paris Project, Grand Paris, which is explored in the work of author and essayist Aurélien Bélanger. We'll also look at depictions of the city that jump off the written page into the medium of French rap. Finally, we'll look at what's next for the city in moving forward and touch upon what urban issues might inform future works. So, to contextualise all of this, let's begin by understanding the shape of central Paris as we know it today, through housemanization. This is a term used to detail the total urban regeneration of Paris, as carried out by Baron Georges Eugène Haussmann, between 1853 and 1870. This resulted in the construction of the Paris that we still recognise today, its boulevards, its avenues and its buildings. The reconstruction of the Avenue de la République, for example, took place in 1858, which leads to the Place de la République, a public space which remains at the heart of protests and rallies on significant issues in French society. So, Haussmann's reforms remain centre to Paris both geographically and sociologically. The process of Haussmannisation both destroyed the city and rebuilt it from the ground up, granting Napoleon III's wish of a city characterised by the glory of the French Empire, leading to the city being deemed the capital of modernity in the 19th century. In embellishing the city to reflect the French Empire, the new boulevards aim to highlight novel engineering and add more light and space to the city. By doing so, however, this drove out working class communities into the suburbs. So while it is true that this reconstruction brought more space, more light and allowed for improved sanitation, Haussmann's main aim was to widen these spaces to allow for an easier circulation of military troops throughout the city. In doing so, working class communities no longer felt a part of Haussmann's Paris, which was enjoyed by a new emerging class, the bourgeoisie. To this day, class segregation through urban planning has remained a constant challenge in the city, from the construction of the ring road known as the Boulevard Périphérique, the segregation of working class and minority ethnic communities in the banlieue, and the issues faced with the rethinking of the metropolitan area of Paris as Grand Paris. So how do all of these urban changes impact literary responses to the city? Let's begin in the 19th century by looking at the work of Charles Baudelaire, writing in the time of Paris as capital of modernity, leading to what many may deem the first of the city's urban poets. The imperfect embodiment of modernity, 
as depicted through the poetry of Baudelaire, has become a constant. Even for the poets of Paris today, the struggle between utopian ideals of the city and the struggle to engage with the spatial reality of the city compelled them to write. These urban poets used tools such as structure and form to reflect the influence of their architectural surroundings, whether it be to critique the architectural experience or to mirror Le Signe or The Swan, one of Baudelaire's most studied works, is a 52-line poem divided into two parts. It was first published in the second edition of Les Fleurs du Mal, released in 1861, as an inclusion in the new Tableau Parisien section. Without going into too much technical detail, a simple analysis of the form and structure of Baudelaire's poetry shows that the poem mirrors the lyric poet's architectural surroundings. Le Signe is made up of 13 quatrains of Alexandrine, an ABAB rhyme scheme, which is a tightly knit structure used typically in the tradition of French poetry. Although it might seem steeped in convention, Baudelaire actually forces the reader to break up the poem into a more manageable structure, showing a real break from tradition. Following on from this break in tradition, which also reflects the newness of Houseman's Paris, the content of the poem is also telling of the poet's sentiments towards the new Paris. His use of language portrays his feelings of disillusion and suffocation in the new metropolis. A particularly striking use of language is the imagery of a swan lost in the new city, terrified as it attempts to find water, just as Baudelaire cannot find comfort in Houseman's Paris. Interestingly, the poem is dedicated to Victor Hugo, who, at the time of writing, was in exile. As Baudelaire struggled to make sense of this new city, Hugo lamented the diversity of old Paris, a feature which was clearly lacking under the process of housemanization. As the scholar David Harvey says, there was only one street in Paris, the Rue du Révoli, and it was being replicated everywhere. But, if Paris was indeed the capital of modernity, it was only appropriate that later it hosted the greats of modernism. And if it hosted the greats of modernism, it was only appropriate that one of the city's modern icons, the Eiffel Tower, was evoked in poetic works of the time. This is especially true in the works of Guillaume Apollinaire and Blaise Sondrars. Whereas, as we've just heard, Boulard's Le Signe is rooted in sentiments of alienation brought about by Paris as capital of modernity, Sondrard employs a significantly more celebratory tone through his depictions of the Eiffel Tower in the aptly named Tour, written in 1913. This poem is an ode to the landmark. Sondrard also worked collaboratively with the artist Sonia Delaunay on a prose text, La prose du Transsibérien et de la Petitienne de France. This text follows a Trans-Siberian rail journey terminating at the Eiffel Tower. Their aim was to sell enough copies of the text that they would equal the height of the tower itself. That's 150 copies, if we're being precise. Apollinaire's work Zone, on the other hand, offers up a much more ambiguous relationship with the city. The poet's walk through the city is laced with echoes of his own personal crisis. Here, the poet depicts the Eiffel Tower as a shepherd, while the city's bridges are sheep. 
This use of pastoral and urban imagery draws links with Baudelaire's Lucigne, but unlike Baudelaire's strong sentiments of alienation, the use of time and space in Apollinaire's poem makes his relationship with the city more dreamlike in nature. The 1920s into the 30s saw an influx of surrealist writers engage with Paris. Here, we're going to move away from poetry to look at two more famous works which lean into the prose genre. There's a shift in this period from the 19th century critical engagement with Haussmann's Paris to a much more imagined city which is guided by elements of play and automatic writing. In these texts, Paris is used as a springboard for creativity. Using its urban feature points, such as its arcs and its angles, and the spatial planning of the modern city for literary expression. Rather than evoking the reality of living in the city, these works rather turn this on its head by using the city as a catalyst for a larger, more experimental idea in their work. Their experience of the city is combined with surrealist practice in order to reflect a playful image of the city in their text. This can be seen in André Breton's 1928 text, Nadja, Three Explorations of the Place Dauphine, and Louis Aragon's 1926 text, Le Paysan de Paris, in which the Bouchaumont Park is the scene of surrealist adventures. These texts brought about a way to celebrate Paris by reimagining its spaces and lived experiences through various styles of writing rich in imagery and the imaginary. The interwar period of the 1920s through to the 1930s saw Paris as the host of artistic expression through the result of socio-political contexts and the surrealist literature we've just discussed is only a small part of this. In the 1920s it was home to the lost generation of American expat writers such as Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald among others. There are many landmarks that remain in the city that are a testament to this outburst of artistic expression. I won't digress too much here, but from a literary urban perspective, much of this history can be seen today at Shakespeare and Company Bookstore on the left bank, run by the American Sylvia Beach, the publisher of James Joyce's Ulysses in 1922. The importance of place to literature in Paris was also evident in the following decade in the period of existentialism, and in philosophical works of the period more generally. In the 1940s and 1950s, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, and Simon de Beauvoir, amongst others, frequented the cafés of Saint-Germain-du-Pré, such as the Café de Flore, like many artistic and literary figures before them. These so-called intellectual cafés remain a popular tourist attraction to this day. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. 
In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Café de Flore was also frequented by key literary figures such as Raymond Queneau and Jacques Prévert, who walked the streets of the city and traced these observations in their work. Both Queneau and Prévert were associated with the prison surrealists to a lesser extent, but their work is not necessarily defined by the movement in the ways in which that of Proudhon or Aragon were. Both writers were members of the Rue du Château group of surrealists who met in the Montparnasse area. Prévert's poetry is widely renowned and often takes Paris as its subject, seen most famously in his 1951 anthology Combal du Printemps. For example, he uses imagery of nature as a commentary on the city's aesthetic in the poem Chanson de la Seine, an enfant de la haute ville is a beautiful ode to everyday life in the city. Raymond Cuneau's literature was heavily influenced by the city in texts such as Courir les Rues, published in 1967. Among other observations, Cuneau pondering the etymology of street name in this book. Exercice du Cille sees the same story recalled in various forms 99 different times. And the story also takes place on a Parisian bus every time. Cuneau's most famous work, the 1959 novel Zazie dans le métro, tells the story of a young girl exploring the city via a metro strike and is also noted for Cuneau's use of an experimental language that he termed neo-français. The 1960s also saw the formation of the Oulipo group in Paris, whose impact spanned centuries. The Ouvroir de Littérature Potentielle, or Potential Literature Workshop, is a group of which Raymond Cuneau was a founding member, alongside François Le Lyonnais. The members included Hervé Letellier, Marcel Duchamp and Georges Perec, amongst others. This group used rules of mathematics and constraints to explore and expand the limits of literature. And many of these resulting texts were influenced by the city of Paris. Perhaps one of the most well-known examples of Paris as a subject of experimental literature is Georges Perec's 1975 book Tentative d'épuisement dans le Parisien, or An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris. Here, rather than describing tourist attractions, Perec simply notes what he observes over three days at the Place Saint-Sulpice. No plot, just happenings. Through the 1970s into the 1980s, literature experienced a much more critical shift in its engagement with Paris. This is especially true for poetry, which in many cases moved back to a more concrete interaction with the city. This interaction was aligned more with Baudelaire's relationship with Paris, as we've seen earlier. Like Baudelaire, these poetic works underline the poet's relationship with urban change in Paris. Yves Martin and Dominique Cromont's works demonstrate this shift, 
which can be seen in Martin's 1972 text Le Marcheur and Grandmont's 1975 text Page Blanche. Here we see a much more melancholy approach to the environment in which the poets live. We could attribute this poetic shift to the city's ongoing urban renewal in the second half of the 20th century and the impact this has had on the poet's work. During this period, huge changes took place in the city, such as the construction of the ring road surrounding Paris, known as the Boulevard Périphérique, which was opened in 1973 and, fun fact, recently celebrated its 50th birthday. Other large projects included the construction of the business district of La Défense, which began in 1958. The controversial Centre Pompidou then opened in 1977. The 1950s through to the 1980s saw the mass production of tower blocks for social housing, known as Habitation à loyer modéré, or HLM. The majority of these were constructed in the 1960s. The construction of these HLMs were a response to the ongoing housing crisis and aimed to provide low-cost housing in new and reconstructed areas of the city. While these were built using labour from migrant workers belonging to minority ethnic groups, these same workers primarily lived in bidonville, or shanty towns, in squalid conditions in the suburbs. In the 1970s this began to change, with the French government attempting to rehome those in the bidonville into the HLMs, being constructed in the suburbs of the city, otherwise known as the bonlieu. The fact that so many of these low-wage workers were subsequently housed together in the HLMs made it easy for them to be used as scapegoats. Young families from minority ethnic groups suffering high rates of poverty. In the 1970s, many became unemployed as a result of the collapse of industries and an oil crisis. As scholar Alec Hargraves comments, those afflicted by high rates of poverty and unemployment became increasingly scapegoated by many on the political right as the alleged causes of the nation's ills. The social, economic and psychological effects of those living in these housing estates then resulted in literary terms in the progressive creation of what became known decades later as the bonlieu literature, focusing on life in Paris beyond the Ring Road or the Boulevard Périphérique. Once again, we see a shift away from poetry in this genre more towards prose. Perhaps one of the most pertinent of these works was Mehdi Sharef's fictional text Le Théorème d'Archiamed in 1974. Written through a post-colonial lens, the story follows Majid, a young boy who lives in the banlieue, who attempts to make sense of two identities, French and Arab. This strand continued into decades later, with many well-known texts emerging as banlieue literature, such as Faiz Aguin's 2004 text Kif Kif Demain. Urban renewal also became a hot topic within the field of contemporary poetry in the 1990s. A subsection of the genre witnessed a turn towards a poetry that was much more engaged with urban change than in previous decades. Many urban renewal projects of the 1980s and 1990s were carried out in the east of the city, such as Bercy and the Ministry of Finance, the Mitterrand site of the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, and the Opéra de Bastille. Rather than using Paris as a backdrop, this poetry's critique of urban form was not only reflected in its content,
but in the form of the text. This is the case in the work of poets such as Jacques Roubeau, who was also part of the Oulipo group that we discussed earlier. Jacques Reda, often cited as a much more modern and more critical version of a flaneur, or even the famous author Michel Houellebecq. Houellebecq is not often recognised for his work as a poet, but before writing his prose, he wrote lots of critiques of the city as part of his poetry collections. His work explores his personal disdain for business districts such as La Défense, or for giant supermarkets or hypermarchés as large consumerist and late capitalist spaces. These texts help to better understand everyday life in Paris. Welbeck's work makes great use of the lyric form and of the Alexandrian, echoing the alienation felt by Baudelaire in his own experiences of modern Paris. Roubault's link with Baudelaire can also be traced back to the poem Le Signe that was mentioned earlier in the episode. The title of one of Roubault's poetic works is a play in words from the line of Le Signe. La forme d'une ville change plus vite, hélas, que le cœur des humains. In other words, the Paris of old is there no more. A city's form changes more swiftly than a human heart. Many of Jacques Reda's works see him walking aimlessly through the city in the style of the flaneur, although some later works take a much more critical approach as the poet becomes less mobile in his old age which reflects the way in which he is able to navigate the city. From post-1990 to present, Parisians have borne witness to many urbanist controversies regarding skyscrapers, the ongoing construction of the Tour Triangle at the Porte de Versailles, and the recent completion of Jean Nouvel's Tour du Rau in the 13th arrondissement are recent examples of this. Such controversies led to the reinstation of regulations around building heights in keeping with heritage of the built environment. These regulations were originally conceived in 1977 as a result of the debate surrounding the Montparnasse Tower. However, perhaps the most significant urban change proposed in recent times is the Grand Paris project, which was not without criticism. The Métropole du Grand Paris project, as proposed in 2007, by ex-president Nicolas Sarkozy, involves reconceptualizing Paris as an entity, Greater Paris, which encompasses the region beyond the Ring Road. Literature in this period as such focuses on peripheries, on in-between spaces, and continuing critical explorations of the built environment. Although, unlike previously, these texts revert to prose form. A few of these texts explore the periphery of the city in a more material manner, such as Jean Roland's 1995 book Zone and Philippe Vasset's 2018 book En Livre Blanc. With regard to Grand Paris, Aurélien Bélanger's 2017 text Le Grand Paris is a fictional account of a disgraced urbanist on the Grand Paris project who comes to understand the socio-political issues of eastern Paris and beyond through his own work. The cultural significance of the periphery between Paris and the Bonneau remains pertinent 50 years on. Although in this episode I've discussed primarily written responses to the built environment, it's important to mention here that French rap offers a really rich poetic space in which urban change affects the people who live there.
This is really evident in the sense of community and pride of place, which is reflected in the culture of rap from the banlieue. From the written page to the final track, the cultural impact of Paris owes a significant amount to the banlieue. This is acknowledged in rapper Medine's track Grand Paris. Medine and several other famous rappers present a sort of reclaiming of Parisian stereotypes in this track. In other words, they are reaffirming the Paris of Paris Centre is not that of the Grand Paris. Rather, the suburbs enrich Parisian culture more broadly, as evidenced in the famous line from the rap, La banlieue influence Paname, Paname influence le monde or the suburbs influence Paris, and Paris influences the world. The cultural significance of the message shifts from the written verse under the screen via the Netflix show Nouvelle École, more recently, the francophone edition of the rap competition Rhythm and Flow. In the show, one contestant, Naira, talks about the influence of the city of Saint-Denis in the northeast of the greater Paris Île-de-France region. She talks passionately about how the city has shaped her creative process and how this is incorporated in the verses of her work. So throughout this episode, we've seen how urban changes in the city have affected the creative process of Paris as writers. We saw how housemanization and modernity informed the poetry of Boulard, and then how the city and the Eiffel Tower in particular was present in avant-garde works by Apollinaire and Sondrard. Then we moved into a period of surrealism and saw how Paris served as a backdrop for the dreamlike texts of Breton and Aragon. This literary experimentation continued with the works of the Oulipo, including Perec and Cunot. We witnessed a more critical shift towards the city's urbanism in the second part of the 20th century, especially with the return to poetry and the emergence of banlieue literature. Finally, we briefly explored how perspectives on Greater Paris, or Grand Paris, went beyond the written page via rap. It will undoubtedly be interesting to see how these creative responses to the city and its urban changes develop in the next few years, especially as Paris prepares to host the 2024 Olympics. Alongside this, the Grand Paris project continues to develop together with ongoing issues of redevelopment and subsequent gentrification. Despite all of this, one thing remains certain. Paris remains just as influential to writers today as it did in previous times of urban change. And no doubt, the great literary tradition of writing about Paris will continue into the next century and beyond. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.